You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Our guest preacher today for this final Sunday in the Summer in the Psalms series is Samuel Brewer. What a fantastic last name, by the way. Where are you, Samuel? The only thing that would make that name better is if you actually do brew your own beverages, shall we say. Uh, Samuel is married to Faith. And they have three children, all under the age of five. So it's a miracle he had time to prepare a sermon for today, to be honest. Uh, Samuel is a recent graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and currently serves at Christ the King Presbyterian Church, which is just down the road from us here in Seminole. Samuel will be preaching this morning from Psalm 110. Will you uh, welcome him with me? Samuel. Good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Dylan, for the um, reaching out. Uh, as Pastor Dylan said, I am a member of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, a sister denomination. But I have many friends in the EPC. In fact, I texted one of them last night and said, hey, I'm branching out. I'm be speaking at an EPC church tomorrow. All he sent back was a laughing emoji, and I... I took a number of languages in colleges, but emoji was not one of them, so I have no idea what he was trying to say. If you could please uh, turn in your Bibles or whatever form you have the scriptures with you this morning to Psalm 110, to Psalm 110, and let me real quick pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you come and send your spirit to open our eyes, open our hearts and ears, that we'd hear what you have us to hear. We pray this in your son's holy name, amen. If you wouldn't mind standing as we read God's holy and infallible word. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thus ends the reading of the word. Maybe see him. Do you like puzzles? The cardboard kind, the, with all the, the pieces? Well, have you ever tried to put one together without like all of the picture? Maybe your kids build something on it. Yeah, it's just like, so you're trying to put it together. And I'm sure there's some of you out there that, that actually like to try to put puzzles together without the picture. Uh, there's a medicine for that, it's called decaf. But for the rest of us mere mortals, we want the picture. And that's, that's not to say we couldn't figure out the, the general idea of what's going on with only part of the picture, but, but you really do need the whole thing to understand what's going on. Well, I don't know if you know this, but over 10% of the New Testament is actually quotes and allusions to the Old Testament. So 
If you don't know your Old Testaments, you're actually missing a significant picture of the puzzle as you read Scripture. And now Psalm 110, it's the most quoted or alluded to passage in the New Testament. That tells us that maybe there's something in here we should pay attention to. And so if I, if I had to give you like what I think the main idea that David's trying to communicate in Psalm 110, it would be this idea that of, of the royal priest Messiah's victory. So that, that would make sense then why the New Testament authors would, would quote this all the time. And, I, and I'll tell you that it's one of those passages that if you spend time studying it, it, it pays off in many other ways. Now, Paul tells us all scripture is profitable for studying, right, and, and knowing, but there are some that just pay out a little bit more, and this one pays out in large, large ways. So there, there's a ton going on in Psalm 110. I'm going to start with a question, and maybe you'll recognize this question. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So how can he be his son? That's the question that Jesus asked the religious leaders and the people when he was in the temple. And it baffled them. Because how could this Messiah be a descendant of David, but David also call him his Lord? There's a time problem here. But Jesus cites this passage, Psalm 110, to invoke something that they hadn't been expecting. And what is that? It's the idea of a royal priest son who was sent from God and who was God himself. Now, many of you have probably read or heard a sermon from the book of Hebrews if you've been a Christian for any length of time. And so you're not shocked by the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, God himself, a priest, a king. It's kind of old news. But, but let me try to frame this in, in such a way that you understand why that's such a powerful truth. Because this truly is an astounding thing, but, you know, it doesn't go back to Sinai in the giving of the law where we actually first see the phrase royal priest. It actually goes back to creation. At Sinai, in Exodus 19.6, we see the people are called royal priests. I think the ESV translated it as a, a kingdom of priests. Royal priests is also a perfectly legitimate translation there. But I do want to mention that in Psalm 110, that's not what David is actually appealing to. He's going back to Genesis. He's going back to creation, specifically the creation of humanity. But then also, he's going to a figure that we'll see in Genesis 14, a figure that kind of just appears. We don't know who he came from or who descended from him or his sons or anything, but he just, he's there for like three, four verses and then he's gone. And that's Melchizedek. And we'll get to that. But what's more important first is understand that Melchizedek's appearance and interaction with Abraham in Genesis 14 is not random. It's built upon things that the reader, us, should notice going on previously in Genesis. So bear with me as we journey a bit to unpack this idea that Psalm 110 is bringing to us, that, that of a royal priest who's the Messiah. 
because it's a major theme in the New Testament concerning Christ, but then also concerning ourselves. So, God created man and woman in the garden, and He gave dominion over the earth to Him. Implicit in this idea of being made in the image of God is that of kingship through sonship. This is why in one sense we can say that all people are children of God because we're all called to fulfill that creation mandate. That, that mandate that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, we're, we are all to do. And think about this, how does someone normally become a king? King Charles right now in England, how did he become a king? Well, he was the heir, the son. From the beginning, Adam was made a son of God and installed as a king over creation. He was called to care for it and to populate it. But this king was not just placed anywhere. He was placed in a garden. And now I don't have the luxury to flesh this all out this morning, but, but Jewish and Christian authors have long recognized that, that Eden is actually a sanctuary. Now, I would say a temple or a tabernacle, but the reality is the tabernacle and the temple are actually modeled on Eden, where their entrance was, the decorations inside, where the the guard statues outside the entrance were. They, They model the garden. And so, Adam is a son of God, given a, a kingly dominion mandate in a sanctuary. Adam is a royal priest who is to further the kingdom of God, which is a kingly duty, by expanding the garden sanctuary, which is a priestly duty. But we know the story. Adam failed. And I think, you know, sometimes we separate out the different titles or or things that we call Jesus. Like, we, we know Jesus is king. We know Jesus is a priest. We know he's the Messiah or the new Adam. But, but these things actually all work together because We need a new Adam to fulfill the royal priestly obligations that were given mankind in the garden. So Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, Christ as the new Adam is actually directly tied to Adam's work and role as a king and priest in the garden. Now, this this still doesn't answer the question about Melchizedek. Why is David invoking in Psalm 110 which seems like a very kingly psalm with the conquering and the scepter and the throne. Why is verse four there? Well, from places like Psalm eight, we know that David does have in mind some of the things we just talked about, that there's a connection between the role of a king and a priest. Though, maybe we need to step back for a minute though and understand the radicalness of this this concept. Because in David's time and before, the role of the priest and the king were, were separate. The, the priests worked in the, the tabernacle. They, they did the sacrifices and all that. They, they didn't have authority outside of that. But think back to the king who last tried to offer sacrifices too, which would be Saul. There's this uh, story in episode, uh, in episode one. Woo. We were watching Star Wars with the kids yesterday. <laughs> the previous king, Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, is supposed to wait for the prophet Samuel to come to sacrifice to God, to answer the question whether he should go down and do all this thing, right? Well, Saul does it himself because he gets impatient. And his impatience and his offering of that sacrifice cost him his throne because he was not authorized to offer sacrifices. 
God was very specific about this. However, there's an exception, and that is David himself. Again, one of the many aspects of this that we don't have time to fully explore today, but David himself is a type of king-priest, just like Adam was, and just like Noah, and just like Abraham, which I'll explain in a minute. For example, in 2 Samuel 6, David offers sacrifices to the Lord while wearing the linen ephod, which was a priestly garment. And he also offers a priestly blessing to the people and distributes to them bread and meat and raisins, which is something priests did. And by the way, this blessing in 2 Samuel 6 and the distribution of bread, I think is supposed to invoke the remembrance of another priest king of which David is modeling a new type of, and that's Melchizedek. And David, as a new Melchizedek, is foreshadowing that there would come another priest king after that same order. But this priest king would be even greater than David because David himself often failed. Keep in mind, too, that Genesis already set the groundwork for the idea that mankind was supposed to be royal priests by virtue of being made in the image of God because this being made in his image is what made them his children. And after Adam failed and God destroyed the earth through the flood and and recreates it, so to speak, he repeats this divine mandate to Noah. So again, establishing that our call to be royal priests is actually rooted in creation. Since Adam failed in his role, something had to be done, though. And something was done. God made a promise back in Genesis 3.15 that he would send someone to make all things right. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God then spends the rest of the scriptures slowly spelling out that that plan of redemption. This means that now Abraham is the next figure relevant to our understanding of Psalm 10. Why? Because it's to Abraham that those promises are made. It's through Abraham's and Melchizedek's relationship to Abraham that Melchizedek's role and primacy even make any sense at all. See, God made a promise to Abraham as a fuller revelation of the promise he made in Genesis 3.15, and he he progressively spells it out in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. But let me sum up the core of that covenant promise, and that is that God will be a God to Abraham and his people, and that the people shall be gods. You may have heard it, I will be a God to you and your people and we are his. This is repeated many times over in the Bible as we move through the various covenants with Moses, with David, and this is the core of the new covenant promise as spelled out in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 30. We are told that it's through Abraham's seed that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, as a side note, remember that it's not just ethnic Israel that is Abraham's seed. Remember, Abraham was not a Jew, Or you could maybe say he was the first Jew. It's two generations later, though, before Jacob, his his grandson's name is changed to Israel. But it's actually another 400 years before Israel is made a nation. And that happens at Sinai. 
Also keep in mind that Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 that the true children of Abraham are those who have his faith, not his genetics. The promises made to Abraham had eternal and spiritual realities that were underlying the material promises, such as the land of Canaan that God made to Abraham. See, Hebrews tells us that even Abraham knew that the promised land was just a type and shadow of the true promised rest of inheriting God himself, whom we as believers in Abraham's God also inherit. These promises are for us. So again, though, what does Melchizedek have to do with with any of this? Well, what I'm not going to do here is go into the the endless speculation as to who this mystery figure is. There there are all sorts of ideas out there, some of which include wondering if Melchizedek is a a theophany, which is like an an appearance of God in human form, like when the three men came to Abraham and told him he was going to have a son. Or maybe it's a Christophany, which is just a pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity coming in human form thing. Those discussions are wonderful and great and for another time because, believe it or not, I, I don't think they're relevant to David's point in Psalm 110. They're not important for establishing Melchizedek's importance. We're simply going to use what the Bible gives us to work with. So I'm going to read the account in Genesis 14 for you and see what's going on. So what I'm about to read is from Genesis 14, 17 to 20. Bear with me. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Lamoer, of the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, who went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, this is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. You may not know this, but Salem, the, king from which, uh, the city from which Melchizedek comes from, is actually what later becomes Jerusalem, capital city of David, Right? And if I pronounce the word a little bit more correctly, you may pick up on a connection you didn't know you knew. The name of the city is actually Shalem, which is related to Shalom. This is the city of peace. Melchizedek's name also communicates to us something about him. His name is a combination for the word king and the word for justice or righteousness. That is to say, his name means king of righteousness. Hebrew 7, which is very important, passage for understanding all this also points that out to us. And Melchizedek is also called a priest of the Most High God. That is to say, Yahweh, the covenant God. So when you read in your Bibles there in Psalm 110, in verse 1 you see, and many of you might know this already, but in verse 1 you see, the Lord says to my Lord, but in your English, the first Lord is all capitalized letters and the second Lord is not. What that's supposed to communicate to you is that this is the specific divine name of God given to Moses at the, the burning bush in, in Exodus 3. So there's, there's significance there. This is the covenant God speaking. So anyway, at the very least, he represents Melchizedek. At the very least, again, with all the speculation stuff aside, he represents 
the king of righteousness, who is the king of the city of peace. And isn't it fun that God is so creative as to give us real events, but do it in this way, where he's naming people things because he's telling you things that are going to happen in the future. So what makes Melchizedek an important figure, one in which David tells us in verse 4, that the Messiah will be after the order of, he'll be after the order of Melchizedek, is several things. First, as we discussed, Melchizedek's name, King of Righteousness. By the way, there's only one other person that's called righteous up to this point in Genesis, and that, that was Noah. So this gives us a little clue as to understand Melchizedek's position and, and that this is coming from a place before Abraham. Melchizedek also blesses Abraham after a conquest, and we don't have time to go into the connections between Joshua and the conquest of the promised land, and which Hebrews will tie Jesus into, and Joshua. There's a lot, as I said, this passage pays off when you do some big uh, study, but we'll move on. Melchizedek blesses Abraham with bread and wine. Now, we instantly know at least some of the biblical imagery surrounding bread and wine, right? Today, celebrating the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, though, we remember his promises of our inheritance because we're his children and he is our God. But there is, there's also a connection we need to see to Adam and Noah, who were also priest kings, like we said, because Adam now, because of the fall, will toil for bread. And Noah gets drunk off his wine. They both failed in their role as priest and king. We also see that Abraham, who is the federal head, that means the covenant head of the people, and Abraham's understood to be this up into Jesus' time, right? That's who the Pharisees appealed to, were, were descendants of Abraham. We see that up until Christ, Abraham's the figure, but Abraham pays tithe to Melchizedek. It's a little weird. But Abraham sees Melchizedek as greater than himself. The author of Hebrews makes this point also, and this is where the rubber really starts to meet the road. It's that Melchizedek is a greater type of priest because the tribe of Levi is still in the loins of Abraham, so to speak. Levi, the Levitical priestly tribe, hasn't been born yet. So by Abraham offering tithe to Melchizedek, there's a symbolism going on here that there's this greater priest. Melchizedek is a priest who blesses the one through whom the covenant promises of redemption are made, though. But Melchizedek's not like a priest who comes after the Levitical order. He is greater. Abraham himself is a type of priest-king, carrying on this idea from Adam and Noah if you think that's a stretch, how about this? In Genesis 12, God makes that promise of the land of Canaan to, to Abraham. So Abraham goes, and in Genesis 12 and 13, do you know what he does? He travels north, south, east, and west, and he builds altars on each of these corners, if you will, of the land of Canaan. Abraham is conquering the land through worship. He is signifying that this land is sanctified to God and set apart. There's a lot going on there. But Abraham, there's other things I can make that case for too, but Abraham is a royal priest who submits to this royal priest, Melchizedek. 
And there's something important that Hebrews tells us about Melchizedek, and this is kind of one of the more important parts. He says that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, whatever else that means about Melchizedek, the point is to show us that his kingship and priesthood represent an eternal kingship and priesthood. So quick recap. Melchizedek represents an eternal king-priest of the covenant God who bestows a blessing upon the lower royal priest from whom the covenant promises, though, will be brought to fruition. This is why David in Psalm 110 brings us to this figure. It is this type of royal priest as described in this entire psalm that David says the Messiah will be like. He will be a son of God who sits at God's right hand as God and as king who's also a priest. Now again, spoilers, it's Jesus. But let's, let's see how so again. You know, we could, we could jump to Hebrews. As some have said, though, Hebrews is it's really a midrash on um, Genesis, which is just uh, Jewish commentary on the scriptures. Uh, if you read the book of Hebrews, you're basically getting a commentary on Psalm 110 almost. But instead, I want to go to Mark. Because when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, he's in a very specific place. So he, he quotes Psalm 110, and he's actually referencing the verses he quotes explicitly are kingly verses, if you will. But is that all, all we should see? Well, Jesus, citing this passage, is sitting in the temple. So we already see the beginnings of the converging of the king and the priest ideas, but this is not actually the beginning in Mark's gospel of this convergence. It's actually the culmination See, Mark has actually spent his entire gospel hinting and alluding to that the one who's bringing the kingdom is a priest. Think about the works that Jesus does in Mark. He heals a leper. He heals a woman with a blood disease. He raises a dead girl. He casts out a demon. Normal everyday stuff, right? Well, what do all these things have in common? The leper is unclean. The woman is unclean. A dead body is unclean. The demon is called an unclean spirit. These are categories of priestly work. Clean, unclean. Also, by the way, it's not Acts 10 where we see the blanket come down and, and God telling Peter, hey, you can eat this stuff now. Thank goodness, we all love bacon. But it's actually in Mark when the disciples are eating on the Sabbath day, plucking grains, and they get yelled at for it. And Jesus says, it's not what is on the outside, right, that defiles you, but what's on the inside. Only a priest can declare something to be clean or unclean. I think also there's an allusion, by the way, to David and his men eating the, the bread in the temple and Jesus and his disciples doing this. But that's one of those other things you got to sidebar and explore later. Oh, and by the way, in Mark 2, what does Jesus do? He forgives a man his sins. That's Day of Atonement stuff. Mark has actually been telling you all along that Christ is a priest. But he doesn't just come out and say it because, to be honest, it wouldn't make sense at first because he's not from the tribe of Levi. But 
that's now where the citation from Psalm 110 comes into play in Mark 12, because he establishes that the Messiah will be a greater king than David. And by the way, since the people will know this psalm, they'll know it very well, Mark is cluing you in that this priest is not like the Levitical priests. See, the, the Levitical priest's work was temporary. They themselves were temporary. They died. So for the Messiah to come as a priest from their line, it wouldn't work because they were from the same line as the flawed royal priests of Adam and Abraham. And even David himself as a type of priest king was incredibly flawed. So although the right to the throne covenantally is through David's line, the kingship and the priesthood must actually be rooted somewhere else. And that is the point David is making when he's invoking Melchizedek and what the writer of Hebrews labors to draw out. It's that Christ is after the order of an eternal priesthood and kingship. He is the eternal royal priest. But he's, he still had to come as a man. Christ did, right? He still had to come as a man because Christ had to fix what the original son, king, priest failed to do. For Christ to redeem us, he had to become like us. But he couldn't just be like us. He also had to be God. Because God is the only one who would not fail. Christ keeps the law. He's faithful. And he fulfills the duties of this royal priest. How so? In the cross. The cross is the throne of the royal priest on earth because that is where we, that's what we deserve for our failures. And the cross is also the place of the priestly sacrifice for sin. What was the banner above Jesus' head? Although said mockingly, it actually declared a stark truth. But unlike the other kings or other priests who die themselves or they have to continually offer sacrifices, this one takes the covenant curse and satisfies its demands and then defeats death by being raised up and ascending to sit on the heavenly throne and rule now his kingdom as king. And he constantly makes intercession for us as a priest. He rules and reigns now from heaven. And unlike the priests of Levi, who could only declare something to be clean and unclean, Christ actually makes the unclean clean. But there's still work to be done. Psalm 110.1 paints this, this already not yet idea. The kingdom's been inaugurated with Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. And through his obedience, he's become the eternal royal priest, but there's still a consummation yet to come, whereas it says all his enemies will be placed under his footstool. And now this is where we come in. We are called to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, as Peter says. You know, one commentator points out that Adam was a priest king in the garden, the people of Israel were priest kings in the land, and the church is now called to be priest kings to the world. Adam, Israel, the church, God's covenant people, 
The church is called as a people and as an institution to share the gospel. For in doing so, we're spreading the kingdom. And when we pray for people, we're doing this priestly work of intercession. When you lead your families, you're modeling the work of a royal priest who loves his people and will give his life for them. The same commentator also remarks that Abraham's children are identifiable not by their ancestry, ethnicity, or geography, but by their reception of the new Melchizedek's bread and wine. God has promised to be our God and that we would be his people and that the Messiah would be the one to set these things right. We now live and work in light of all this. But our works as a royal priesthood are only effective because we're united to Christ's royal priestly work. But, but this also means that we can live confidently as Christians, that we can come boldly before the throne to see our Father because we've been justified. We can be assured that our sins are forgiven because our priest made a sacrifice whose work is everlasting. And when we pray the Lord's prayer that his kingdom come, we are praying for that which is promised, that one day all his and our enemies will be placed under his footstool and we will live with him in that eternal, eternal promised land of peace. We will inherit God himself. Let's pray. Eternal God, who has appointed your only Son to be our King and Priest, that we might be sanctified by the sacrifice of His body upon the cross. Grant that we may be so participants of His benefits that we may renounce our own selves and serve Him in all holiness and purity of life. And may we offer up spiritual sacrifices that may be pleasant and acceptable unto you, the self-same Jesus Christ. Amen.